This tour has been sponsored by Rugby Borough Council and the Town Centre Company. The Pathway of Fame, part two, a tour around the birthplace of rugby football. Now, in part one, we took in the first 19 plaques set in the pavements of the town, taking us from 1823 when William Webb Ellis picked up the ball and ran with it for the first time, which marked the birth of the sport, to Cliff Morgan, who, after an international career as fly half for Wales, became one of the UK's best-loved sports broadcasters. I'm Jane Markham, and we're joined for expert commentary, as it were, by former England fly-half, later England coach, and now director of rugby for Argentina, Les Cusworth, and blue badge guide, Roger Bailey. And we pick up the tour at Plaque 19. We're on Church Street, next to St Andrew's Church. This is a very important place. On the other side of the road, the row of shops replaces the old Lawrence Sheriff almshouses. And a little-known fact, to the left of the travel care, there was a tiny plaque saying that the original building of Rugby School was on this site. We're passing St Andrew's Church on our right-hand side now. You can go in, maybe have a cup of tea or coffee. And keeping the church on our right, we're heading up to plaque 20. And remember to look at the plaques. Each plaque has a little arrow on it pointing you in the right direction. Uh, you'll know when you've got to plaque 20. It's on the other side of the road to the Bank of Scotland. Neil Fox. Les Cusworth. Having come from Normanton, West Yorkshire, uh, my, uh, when I was a teenager, my rugby team were Wakefield Trinity. And uh, Neil Fox was uh, played for Wakefield Trinity and was one of three rugby league uh, playing brothers. Uh, Peter and Don were the, other, were the other two. He set a few records in his professional career, uh, which was a long one as he started at the age of 16 and finished at the age of 40. These records include scoring 12 goals in one match, 33 points in a match and 20 points in a Wembley final. He had 29 caps of Great Britain and went on to coach in England and New Zealand. What's also worth noting is, um, next to the Royal Bank of Scotland, just to the left of it, you can see HSBC. But notice the piece of art on the right-hand side, the moulded piece of art. I wonder what those symbols denote. Agriculture, industry, transport and commerce. But the main feature is the Greek word for bank. quite narrow here and so is the pavement uh, but number plaque number 21 is here and uh, it, it, it ties in yet another international rugby star to the, to the pathway. Shigi Kono one of the uh, true rugby ambassadors in the Far East in Japan and Shigi was de- deprived of an international career by the war but made his mark as an, as an administrator of the game he managed the Japanese side on nearly all their overseas tours from 1963 to 1990 during which time he was always Secretary-General of the Asian Rugby Football Union. And Shigi Kono, indeed one of the lasting memories for me in the Far East, was the Hong Kong Sevens. And Shigi was one of the founder members of the Hong Kong Sevens and, and brought it into the fantastic tournament there is today. And it's another straight-on arrow, so uh, we'll move on to number 22. We're coming round the corner and bearing right and looking for an arrow. Found it. So it's pointing us towards the little park up here. Yeah, it's actually um, a graveyard. Oh. Um, so, <laughs> but they were, in the early days when they started making cemeteries, they were actually supposed to be parks at the same time. But notice on the floor we come across our second arrow, which ah. points us to the left. Right, so we don't go into the park. We don't actually go into the park, no. Follow that pigeon. And now we're going to take another left. Ah! And head towards the pedestrian crossing. 
Here we are, number 22. Uh, Brian Lahore, again, uh, coached New Zealand's All Blacks from 1985 to 1987 when they won the first ever Rugby World Cup. That was obviously after playing for them on 68 occasions and he, kept, he was captain for them in 18 of them. His boy a dream was to be a jockey, but at six foot three, tall and uh, a fair weight, obviously that ambition never developed. Brian Lahore, one of the true greats of New Zealand and All Black Rugby. Uh, before we cross the crossing, as it's telling us to do, there are some uh, other things to point out, I think. There's a sweet little pub on the opposite side of the road called The Squirrel. It looks far too tiny to fit anybody in, to be honest. But uh, what else is around here? Well, actually, the area on this side of the road is known as the Pleasance, an area of historical interest where once stood an old horse pool with a ducking stool. Oh, really? For the witches? Well, for anyone who... They want to check if they're guilty or innocent. So if they drown, they're probably innocent. Yes. I've always thought that that was um, very fair. So where the pigeons are happily wandering around on the paving flags, there's a much um, murkier past. Oh, a very murky past. There's a lot of history around this area, as we're about to discover. But we are now going to cross to pedestrian crossing. While we wait for the lights to change, there are quite a few coming up that are quite close together then. There are. And once we cross the pedestrian crossing, we're going to bear off to the right and go behind the squirrel pup. This is number 23 from Tonga, Fakahau Valu. Um, we really are travelling around the world during our tour of rugby. Fakahu Valu from Tonga, um, obviously a group of 36 islands in the Western Pacific with a total population of just over 100,000 people. He was a member of the Tongan team that had a historic victory over Australia in 1973 by 16 points to 11. He was still playing for the side in the 1987 World Cup when he scored his country's only try in their opening game against Canada. It's also worth remembering the Squirrel Inn. There's a lot of watering holes around. This one dates back to the 18th century and was originally two cottages. So we're going to go behind the Squirrel Inn, unless you're tempted to go inside, and go past a, a, quite an amazing selection of small shops. If you'd popped in and had your hair cut in there, it looked... It looked I've never seen a barber shop so busy. <laughs> We're back in Wales for number 24 at the end of that, uh, well, the other end of the Squirrel Pub, in fact, for uh, Gareth Edwards. Now, there's a, a name to conjure with in rugby, in rugby terms. Yeah, Gareth Edwards, again, another remarkable gentleman of rugby football. And we'll all remember him for scoring probably the try in history. And some would say the world's greatest ever try for the Barbarians and the All Blacks in Cardiff, 1973. And started by another friend of mine, Phil Bennett. He was quoted as saying, the game against the All Blacks is one I will never forget, and those of us who played in it will never be allowed to forget. And I think that could be the same of all of us who were lucky enough even to watch it. He represented Wales on 53 occasions after winning his first cap while still a teenager. His career included three Welsh Grand Slams, the Triple Crown and a Five Nations Championship. Right, we turn left from Gareth Edwards. It used to be a regular market in this area. It's an old market square. And if you look carefully, you can still see the way it's evolved over maybe not just years, but centuries. It's a bit sad to see it's a car park nowadays, but as you point out, it would make a wonderful spot for a market with, with all these lovely old buildings around it. And the possibility is that some of these shops behind us evolve from market stores. That's not an unusual thing in towns. Um, if they ha- hold a permanent pitch, they evolve into permanent locations. And that's a possibility that some of what we're looking at originated as, as market traders. Now, you have to be a little bit careful looking at this one because I notice we're, if, if 
cars come into this car park, they'd want to drive over this plaque. Number 25, Mike Gibson of Ireland. In fact, it's, it's looking very polished. I think that must be the cars that go over I think it's people driving over it, actually. It's, I don't think it's for any other reason. Mike Gibson, again, the Irish centre of all time, and again, a gentleman of the game. He, he won 69 caps for Ireland over 16 years, which was a record, plus being, being the most distinguished British Lion ever to have been on five Lions tours, 66, 68, 71, 74 and 77. An incredible feat which is unlikely to be replicated in this professional age, but a feat, a feat he shares with his teammate on the next plaque, who is, surprise, surprise, uh, Willie John McBride. And the arrows are taking us round to the, uh, to the right. Ah, number 26, Willie John McBride. Willie John McBride, a true great of world rugby, obviously an Irishman with a few records to his name, including the most tests. And the, the record five tours with the British Lions he shares with his teammate, Mike Gibson. He captained the Lions on a tour of South Africa in 1974 that was to become the stuff of folklore, winning 21 out of 20, 22 games. They were undefeated on that tour, and obviously they drew the other one. And here he is, outside the Rugby Irish Association, so he's probably uh, very happy to be here at number 26. He couldn't be a better place, could he? <laughs> I'm sure they raise a glass to him now and again. I'm sure they do. <laughs> I'm off to the left now. It's a very different part of rugby, this. Gas Street, it's called, uh, and there's a lot of new building, and it's much quieter than some of the other parts we've walked through. I guess you could call it a hidden gem in, in rugby. Um, a lot of the historical part of rugby is on this side, um, and it's often missed, which is a shame. It's got so much to offer. We're actually stopped at plaque number 27. Ian McGeekin from Scotland. Uh, again, I was lucky enough to play with Ian McGeekin uh, uh, right at when my career started in the early 70s, and played play for Yorkshire at the end, obviously known as Geech, was born in Leeds and played for Headingley, robbed it to play for Scotland. He was the master of the drop goal, and not only scored one on his debut against New Zealand, but went on to score seven more in his 32 internationals. After retiring as a player, he built his reputation as probably the one of the Lions coaches of all times, and certainly a knowledge in rugby football that is unsurpassed in the modern era. As in any town, um, a town takes advantage of its famous sons. This is the uh, Rupert Brook Free House we're passing on our left, I notice. Uh, as we come back into, ah, the Royal Bank of Scotland. We've, we visited this earlier. Yes. We're doing a loop round at the moment, looking for our next one on the floor, which is at the top of this road. Okie dokie. So, plaque number 28, uh, Colin Meads from New Zealand. Colin Meads, another, another Kiwi of uh, great esteem. He was a farmer by trade and known as the Pine Tree due to being six foot four tall. Uh, obviously, Colin was capped on many occasions for New Zealand, playing with great distinction after making his debut in 1957 and his career spanned three decades. And the arrow takes us across Albert Street, so um, worth pausing the old MP3 while we cross the road. Not far to go, once we've safely negotiated the road, uh, to number 29, and uh, in Argentina this time. Hugo Porta from Argentina, and uh, the 1981 um, Sevens in Hong Kong. Hugo was playing for Argentina, I was playing for the Barbarians. And uh, Hugo was one of the most famous players uh, for Argentina. He played for Argentina for over 20 years. He retired after the 1987 World Cup, and in 1991 he was appointed Argentine ambassador to South Africa 
before, before becoming Argentina's Minister for Sport in 1994. In 2000, his car was carjacked in Buenos Aires. Not the first one, I suppose, or the last. But the thieves returned his vehicles after reading whose car they had stolen in the newspaper. Hugo Porter, uh, to me, is one of the gentlemen of rugby football. A lovely man, a great disposition, and really cares about rugby football and the future of rugby football. That's Hugo Porter from Argentina, number 29, and it's straight on from here. Ah, I mean, it's not far before we... Literally, what, 30 feet? We have a a huge rugby ball suspended uh, in a rugby goalpost, and on the floor, a map of the world. So, a bit to read here. It's fantastic, talks about the early game, but let's look at the other side, because this is even more interesting. Ah, Oh, now it all becomes clear on this side. Um, the competing nations in the 2003 uh, World Cup. The host nation, of course, being Australia. And we all know what happened in 2003. That was our greatest moment. And it's great that we celebrate it in, su- in such a way. So moving on, we're heading up towards Regent Street, which sounds very posh. And here we are at uh, plaque number 30 and JPR Williams. JPR, obviously known as JPR, uh, was capped 55 times for Wales from 1969 to 81. He said he would uh, would have run through a brick wall for Wales, I think he did on one or two occasions, and amongst many triumphs, he was never on a losing side against England in that period. That wasn't too difficult as a Welshman, I gather, and he was also a mean tennis player, having won junior Wimbledon, and he went on to be, as we know, a distinguished medical career and rugby coach and, and JPR again is one of the names that is at the end of your tongue about the folklore of Welsh rugby and standing here you get a good view looking back at St Andrew's Church good place to take a photograph uh, and the arrows point us down Regent Street so we're off down Regent Street well Regent Street takes us very much into the, the sort of uh, the hub of the town again I think it's a classic part of rugby to be honest and you know, you almost think you're in one of the spa towns with the quality of the buildings down here. It's got lots of little cafes and bread shops as well down here. It's a great place for a break. Yes, it's, and it's one of those streets where it's worth looking up because all the, all the gables, they're all different, aren't they, from different eras? Wonderful, isn't different, ar- different types of architecture. It's wonderful down here. Mm. So the next plaque is a little bit further down Regent Street. It is, halfway down. Let's have a, let's have a look. And here we are with Stefano Bettarello, number 31, uh, from Italy. What, uh, what do we know about Stefano Bettarello? Stefano Bettarello had a, a good pedigree in the game. His father and his uncle, Romano and Ottorino, were international players for Italy before him. His claim to fame, he was the first player in world rugby to score more than 400 points in full internationals. Now we've got Henry Street ahead of us and the sign from the plaque saying, straight on. So here we are, plaque number 32. Normally, I would say, probably quite a quiet part of rugby, but uh, they've got the strimmers and the lawnmowers out today in the, in the little park to our left. But number 32, Serge Blanco. Serge Blanco, one of the full-backs of all time, and he was known as the Beritz Bomber and was born in Venezuela. He was capped 93 times for France and is now one of the most influential men in French rugby. He was the world's most capped player until he was overtaken by David Campese and Philippe Seller. And uh, as I say, Serge was one of the most exciting backs that France, uh, France have shown for the last 30 years. An incredible player, 
give him an inch and I'll take a mile. As we finish talking about the plaque, it looks as though the, the activity in the, uh, the little park to our left seems to have, hap- seems to have uh, gone away. Uh, and uh, we'll wander across there because the, the, the signs say we need to turn left um, through a parked car. But uh, the, they look uh, very attractive, these gardens, particularly now the man with the lawnmower is gone. <laughs> it's a beautiful little garden area. It's called the Jubilee Gardens with a statue of Rupert Brooke inside. Ah. And we saw where he was born earlier on. So this is a continuation of the story. The statue was unveiled in 1987. The gardens were formed in 1977 to mark the Silver Jubilee of Queen Elizabeth II. Peace at last. It's great. It's beautiful in these gardens. There's a lovely plaque all about Rupert Brooke. Um, He died in 1915 and it tells you all about him on this plaque in front of you to the right of the statue and there's another couple of plaques opposite the statue between the benches. And I think it's worth having a look at those. So let's walk over and have a little look. Ah, it was a manor house. Yeah, and that's why we've walked over here, because this is where there was a manor house. Um, it was a fortification. It was actually here in the reign of King Stephen. And that was a great conflict in this country at the time. So this is worth remembering how old this part of rugby actually is going back several hundred years to the destruction of this and the manor of the de Rokeby family from where the name comes well there you go yes isn't it fantastic another little gem on the rugby trail and so from here on uh, we continue along the footpath that takes us right through the centre of this little park and on the other side of the park on the pavement just before you get to the road plaque number 33 Nas Borta from South Africa. Again, I've had the privilege of playing against Nas. He led South Africa back into the National Rugby Fold in 1992, but his career had been severely curtailed by the boycott, obviously, of his country over apartheid. He played in just 28 internationals between 1980 and 1992, but still managed to pick up a world record for, for 18 drop goals. Uh, the British press gave him the nickname Nasty Buta uh, when the British Lions toured South Africa in 1980. He now commentates on rugby on South African television and is indeed a visionary on rugby football and his knowledge of rugby football is unsurpassed. And he opened the Rugby Pathway of Fame in 1999. So he actually did the opening of this whole trail? He certainly did. So it takes us across the road, so another road to negotiate. (laughs) We've just crossed another little road. There's a sign called Chestnut Field just to his left if you want to... uh, to work out exactly where number 34 is, and it's David Campese of Australia. David Campese, again, I've uh, I've had the privilege of uh, playing against David and with David for a number of years, both with Leicester and the Barbarians, and uh, Campo was known as the unknown teenager working in Australian sawmill when he got his call up to the Australian side, and that was in 1982. By the time he retired, 14 years later, he'd done very well out of rugby with 101 caps and a world record 64 tries. And he developed what was thing called the goose-stepping style, which fooled opponents and friends alike into thinking he was slowing down when, in fact, he was speeding up. He could be outspoken, and this sometimes brought him uh, press that wasn't favourable, but with a rugby ball, he was unsurpassed. And the ball in his hands, he was a, a sheer genius in the game of rugby football. And David Campisi, I think, has been the bridge between the older style of rugby and the professional era. A, a fantastic Australian sportsman, and indeed, um, after he stops pommy bashing, uh, a real credit to the game of rugby football. 
It's a lovely little walk through the trees down to plaque number 35. Peter Fatilofa from Western Samoa. Yeah, Peter Fatilofa, captain Western Samoa from 1989 to 1995 and led the team at the World Cup finals in 1991 and 1995 in South Africa where they reached the quarter-final on both occasions. A remarkable feat for a country of just 160,000 people. The burly skipper, who was once a piano mover, was the cornerstone of Samoan rugby for many years and indeed a true gentleman of the world of rugby. And uh, ahead of us here, I can see another of these uh, interesting plaques with lots of information. Why are we commemorating Sir Frank Whittle in, uh, in Chestnut Fields in rugby? Well, that's interesting. I mean, Sir Frank Whittle was born in Coventry, just up the road, but he actually was based in rugby for quite a while, specifically at Brands Over Hall, and it was in rugby that the very first firing of a jet engine took place. World history was made here. And the story goes that he actually, uh, about to start the engine up, they opened some windows to let all the uh, flames out, and that's how the first jet engine was actually seen, with the windows wide open. I don't think health and safety was an issue in those days. <laughs> no. And he had no idea what was going to happen, but it fired, and it fired very well. And the building, well, there's not much building here, but I imagine the building lived to tell the tale at the time. <laughs> the building left, left, did live to tell the tale, but it's a great plaque. It tells you all about Frank Whittle and the history of himself and the history of the jet engine, the early days of the jet engine. And a lovely sculpture to have a look at too. Yeah, and you've got a beautiful, well it's, it's called the Whittle jet, but it's actually a meteor. The first jet fighter for the Allied forces was a meteor fighter. Uh, many of them made not too far from here, a place called Baggington. So uh, there's a lot of local history associated with the jet, first Allied jet fighters. Here at the bottom of the track, just before we join the road again, Tommy Lawton from Australia, plaque number 36. Uh, Tommy Lawton, he played 41 times for Australia, following in the footsteps of his grandfather, who was also coincidentally called Tommy. In 1990, he left, uh, he left to South Africa, where he played for Natal, hooking for them when they won the Curry Cup that year. Now, as you've been talking to me, I suddenly turned round and looked up at the Frank Whistle sculpture, and it is a fantastic sculpture. So if you're standing, looking at the number 36 plant, and you just swizzle round, you get a beautiful view of that sculpture. Now, often across the road, I, I see... That's a busy little junction here. Do, uh, do watch it as you uh, cross the roads around here. We've uh, come across the road, and we're at the entrance, magnificent entrance, may I say, of uh, a park. We're in Park Road, rather conveniently, in front of the park gates, number 37... Let me walk round to read it. Philippe Seller from France. Philippe Seller, uh, obviously a Frenchman, was described as having the strength of a bull and the touch of a piano player. And he achieved the world record of playing 111 internationals for France and retired in 1995. And again, Philippe was one of the centres of all time. Great vision, uh, exceptional pace when needed, and a real master of the game of rugby football. Now, where we're standing, it's interesting to note, this is Caldicott Park, opened in 1904, so just over 100 years ago. Thomas Caldicott, the last Lord of Rugby Manor, died in 1875. You might be tempted to have a look in the park, which uh, looks very inviting, but actually our pathway takes us uh, in the other direction. Now, you'll have to be quite careful finding this. You go across the road, across the crossing, back onto the same side of the road as Chestnut Fields, and then you will see the next little bronze arrow in the path pointing you back into the centre of rugby. The center rugby. Yeah. And uh, behind the tree, 
nearly missed it because there's a lime tree between that uh, arrow and the next plaque, number 38, which commemorates the first Rugby World Cup. And that took place in 1987, so not that long ago. Competition was staged jointly by Australia and New Zealand, with 16 nations invited. New Zealand opened the tournament in Auckland, beating Italy 70-6. to And we're back in Auckland a month later for the final against France. Very important part of the history of rugby football. Amazing to think that it was so recent, in fact. And if you look behind you, Rugby Town Hall is just located behind you. Just catch a glimpse of it there. Oh, right, with the, with the flags on the roof. With the flags on the roof, yes. <laughs> but we're going straight ahead, uh, up back into the centre, and uh, going to look for number 39. Ah, you probably noticed we're by a crossing again. <laughs> you can hear the beeps from the crossing. Uh, we've found plaque number 39. Uh, we mentioned the uh, Rugby World Cup just now, and plaque 39, well, it's another Rugby World Cup. Well, it's even more important, I guess, in some ways. It's well, the first <laughs> Women's Rugby World Cup in 1991. It took place in Cardiff, 12 teams taking part, all paying their own way. The finalists, USA and England, had to play five matches in eight days, and the USA won. And swinging around behind us, there's uh, something else of interest. Because to our left-hand side is new public toilets, and there's a beautiful relief on the side of the building, showing you uh, local heritage, including jet engine, jet fighters, steam engine, and, of course, a canal boat. It's a uh, wonderful piece of art. Now, that is rather beautiful, and as you say, it's a public toilet, and there you go. You can, you can make art and something attractive to look at out of, uh, out of just about anything. You can, and by the way, for those who don't know the planes, it's actually a Meteor, which was the first, again, Allied fighter that was powered by a jet engine designed by Sir Frank Whittle. So that's what it is on the side. Right, but meanwhile, back at the plaque, it's taking us uh, across the road. Oh, and I think the traffic's stopped. That's very, very convenient. The traffic has stopped anyway, and we're heading towards plaque number 40 on the road. Mark Andrews from South Africa. Yeah, South African Mark Andrews at 647 was an awesome reputation as a line-out specialist. He was one of these Springbok side who lifted the Webb Ellis Trophy in 1995 with the Rug Rugby World Cup, obviously, on home soil in South Africa. Again, a real hard physical combative forward uh, that you wouldn't argue with. But very useful to have six foot seven inches to your name. Yes, it is. And you have two or three of those in your team, you're not going to finish second very often. So, straight on up the hill, back towards the clock tower that we saw earlier on. Yeah. So we're almost up uh, on the clock tower and we found number 41, Derek Bevan. We had a Bevan before, he was Australian. Uh, this is Derek Bevan of Wales. Derek Bevan, uh, was, he's the only referee in the pathway of fame in rugby. He held the world record for officiating at the most international matches. He officiated, the four, obviously, the four World Cups. Uh, plus breaking records for the number of times a referee has refereed a Welsh Cup final. And he was also in charge of refereeing the World Cup Sevens, the Dubai Sevens, Student World Cup Finals, and the 1997 European Cup Final. Again, a Welsh gentleman who had great expertise and experience in the art of refereeing. Now, I've mentioned the clock tower on a couple of occasions. Tell us a bit more about it, because I think this is, a, this is a, good, a good point to talk about it. Yeah, the clock tower erected by subscriptions from townsfolk to mark the Golden Jubilee of Queen Victoria, and that was done in 1904. Built on the side of a market cross, which stood here from the early times until the 17th century, this is an important part of rugby, almost a, a centre stage for rugby. So is the market cross 
the, the sort of the traditional centre of a town. Yes, it is. It's normally where the roads cross. Uh, normally, four roads meet. It's where where people sit there and chat away about what's going on. They sell the vegetables. Quite a common thing in an awful lot of towns around this country. So most towns and small cities would have had a cross originally. And in fact, I mean, that's what's happening here today. There are people sitting on the benches. Uh, there's a little vegetable shop up the, just up the, up the street there. So it's not much changes, really. It's quite uncanny, isn't it? Yeah, it's still got an atmosphere, even in the 21st century, of what it would have been like once. And there's a newsagent just around the corner. And, of course, that would have been part of what the cross would have been doing, promote and talk about the latest gossip and the latest news so it's all happening here so how many more have we got to go we must be nearing the end oh we're nearly there 41 uh, 42 is next all right so we've passed the vegetable shop and we're coming up to ah number 42 another familiar name to uh, english rugby fans will carling i was assistant england coach uh, will carling was captain of england Will, uh, Captain England Schoolboys in 1984, and went on to become England's youngest captain when he was just 22, and later achieved the status of the world's most successful international captain with 44 victories out of 59 matches. He played a total of 72 internationals. After retiring, he became a television pundit, uh, but indeed, Will Carling was a fantastic rugby player, great skill, great place, great strength, and indeed was probably the architect of taking, rug- of taking English rugby uh, from its mediocre days to the more glory days of the early 90s with Grand Slams. And obviously great success in the Five Nations. What's worth noting is a little alleyway down on our right, because the oldest shop in Rugby is just, just visible down to our right-hand side with a blue pack on the side. Ah. Worth having a quick look at that by if the you bla- get the By the Black Swan pub? Yes. <laughs> Seem to be plenty of watering holes as we've been walking around. This is formerly a butcher shop where Tom Brown was said to have bought a piece of steak to cover his black eye after a fight with Slugger Williams. Although we have to remember, of course, that Tom Brown was fictional. Was it? Oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was, but it's a beautiful story. Now, we've come off the track a little bit to have a look at that, uh, that plaque, so we want to go back up to the main street. We'll get another one very shortly. So some of these have been a bit tricky to find. Uh, it's easy enough today, but sometimes there's a, there's a market on this street, I think. Yes, there is, and you have to be careful cars parking over something as well. So uh, just be aware on the map that you got from the visitor centre exactly where your position is. So we're taking the right-hand fork. Ah, and here it is. Number 43, Sean Fitzpatrick from New Zealand. Sean Fitzpatrick, most capped player for the All Blacks of all time with 128 matches. Uh, beating his, his father Brian by more than 100 caps. And again, for a father and son to be capped by their country is obviously something quite exceptional. He capped in the New Zealand side uh, from 1992 to 1997 and at one time played 63 consecutive tests. Sean Fitzpatrick, one of the most physical combative forwards that New Zealand have ever produced, again, never taking a step backwards, now a leading expert and pundit on rugby on television. Sean Fitzpatrick, a true great of New Zealand rugby. We must be getting... We're, we're nearly up to date now, so we, we must... We, are. I can I can see the end must be in sight. Number 44 must be straight on. Now, this is, this is familiar. We're back nearly at the very beginning because we're at the top of Wall Street where we started off, or virtually where we started off, to see plaque 44, which I missed totally as we walked past this spot earlier. Gavin Hastings. 
Uh, Gavin Hastings, the gentleman of Scottish rugby, the captain of Scotland 20 times before leading the British Lions in New Zealand in 1993. And he and, he and his brother Scott became the first brothers to play together in Lions Tests. Gavin, an exceptional rugby player with great speed and pace and awareness, a mean golfer, four handicap golfer, and uh, as I say, Gavin Hastings, yet again another true gentleman in the world of rugby. So really, we're r right up the end of the street now, and uh, this one is it's lucky we've seen this one because it is uh, virtually parked under the uh, the wheel of a van. That's a, a problem that you might have to take into account when you're going around, but we're uh, outside the Thai Orchid restaurant and uh, back up to... Is that, is that rugby school again? Rugby school in front of us. We're just further down where we were earlier on. And this is Nick Mallet from South Africa. Uh, Nick Mallet was born in England but moved to South Africa at the age of seven. He was captained for South Africa in 1984 uh, but made his biggest mark as coach of the Springboks. He took the team on when they were in the doldrums in 1997 and guided them to 17 successive victories. And interesting, if you turn round, you can just see the Three Horseshoes Hotel. It was once the rendezvous of the excise officers who came to rugby to collect taxes and also of the city fathers who used it to discuss town business calling themselves the Horseshoes Parliament. Or runner of the town hall in some ways, then. I guess so in some ways, yes. <laughs> right, up towards the main road and bearing round to the right. Big traffic junction to our left, but uh, bear round, stay on the pavement, and you get to number 46, Gareth Rees from Canada. Yes, Gareth Rees, uh, fly half for Canada, his first captain when he was 18 in the 1987 World Cup. And he scored 15 of his side's 19 points against Argentina and played in the first four World Cup finals between 1987 and 1999. And he retired from, inter when he retired from international rugby. Gareth Reese is one of the foremost Canadian rugby internationals, played for Wasps, and indeed an exceptional footballer with great hands and great feet. And now he's very much involved in the international coaching setup. What's interesting here is also, literally to the side of us, is the Rugby Football Museum housed in the original building where William Gilbert made the world-famous rugby footballs from 1842. It's a great museum. It's got lots of nostalgia, lots of newspaper cuttings and stories to tell. It's well worth a visit. I'd switch off and go in here for five minutes if I was you. You won't regret it. So we've made our way over to another of these beautifully designed plaques. This is to celebrate Gilbert, the statue and the school. Gilbert being who? Well, Gilbert is associated with the museum we've just passed because they made the first rugby footballs. And then on the pavement, now before we, before we go to the, what I thought was going to be the plaque actually isn't the plaque that we're looking for at all because it's to do with the clock. Yeah, we've actually got um, something to remember the wedding of the Prince of Wales to Lady Diana Spencer next to the lamppost to the left of the board. So it's worth pointing out to you if you're interested in that part of our history. But we're now going to make our way to the fence where ah. the next number is. Yeah, there it is. Number 47, this is Wesali Serevi from Fiji. Uh, Wesali Serevi, uh, one of the Fijian greats. He played for th Fiji 13 times and uh, is still known for all his skill in the rugby sevens. He, be he began his career in Hong Kong from where he gained his nickname, the Wizard of Hong Kong. He retired after the 2003 Rugby World Cup when England beat Fiji and won the World Cup. And uh, he was persuaded to come back to return for the 2005 Sevens World Cup, where he led his country to the title. 
Wasali Sarevi is probably the greatest sevens player in history, a true magician of the, of the of the game and art of sevens football. He could do things with a rugby ball that we could only dream of. You've had quite a, a career with rugby sevens as well, I think. Yes, I have. I played in Hong Kong a lot of times. I was um, played the tournaments in Hong Kong in 1983. And again, Hong Kong and sevens rugby to me is something special in the rugby calendar around the world. And obviously I went on after that to coach England when we won the England World Sevens in 2003 when Sarevi was actually playing against us in the semi-final when England England uh, succeeded. And he is the last but one on our tour. And to, to find the last plaque, we have the most difficult road to cross so far, I think. <laughs> We've got to go across to the statue on the other side of the road. Underneath the William Webb Ellis statue, we have the very final plaque in the tour. Of all the plaques to see, this is probably the greatest one of all because this celebrates the 2003 World Cup victory for England. In the quarter-final, Wales were seen off by Johnny Wilkinson's boot and their best football of the tournament was against France in the semi-finals. The final against host Australia was taken to extra time, the deadlock being broken in extra time with a drop goal that everybody remembers by Johnny Wilkinson. The final score being 2017, and how can any of us ever forget that final few moments? Tense or what? And this plaque was actually unveiled in 2004 by Sir Clive Woodward. And above the plaque... As I mentioned earlier, the William Webb Ellis statue, uh, and that's a, he's sort of poised, isn't he? It's a, it's a beautiful bronze. It is. He's actually seen to be running across the field with that famous ball in his hands. This is a great way to finish the pathway of fame under the statue of William Webb Ellis, the guy that started it all off all those many years ago. And a final word from Les Cusworth, our expert commentator on the tour, former England fly half, of course, later England coach, and now the new director of rugby for Argentina, about the future of the game. The future of the game is very exciting. I think the International Rugby Board are trying to take rugby union worldwide. Uh, they're now The IRB are now making significant investments around the world. And obviously I'm going to take one of those positions as director of rugby in Argentina. But, you know, you look at Georgia, you look at Russia, developing the game in China, Canada, sleeping giant, the United States. They're playing women's rugby in Venezuela. They play men's rugby in Brazil, Uruguay, Chile, Not before we even start talking about the Far East. So I think the game's in good hands. I applaud the IRB for what they've done over the past five to ten years with the development of the game. And hopefully in 20 years' time, we can get eight or nine teams who are capable of winning the World Cup and not currently just the four or five. And to me... If the game is handled correctly, uh, rugby union will continue to drive forward and excel in the years to come. Uh, but as I say, it's all the fascinating part of rugby is the challenge, the people you meet, and the enjoyment of those challenges, and also the enjoyment of relationships you make. Les, thank you very much indeed. It's been my pleasure. And we really hope you've enjoyed your tour with us today. We've hoped you enjoyed walking around the uh, town of Rugby. But please remember to take your player back to the visitor centre, which is only two or three minutes to walk away from where we're standing. Yeah, take your MP3 player back. You get your deposit back too, then. Don't forget the money, yes. <laughs> <laughs> this tour has been sponsored by Rugby Borough Council and the Town Centre Company.